Welcome to the Teens Talk podcast, created by the Student Virtual Board of Youth Celebrate Diversity. YCD supports students and teachers organizing locally, educating themselves and their peers, and taking action for inclusion and social justice. For more information, visit ycdiversity.org. In this episode, board members Redia and Etsub talk with two leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement one in Denver and one in Albuquerque, about their work for racial justice. Welcome to this episode of Teens Talk, Black Lives Matter edition. My name is Etsu Burku. And my name is Radiat Mogus. And today we have with us Nikki Arch and April Alexander. And before we get this episode started, we wanted to give you guys um, an opportunity to introduce yourselves to anyone who's listening. So take it away. Well, I guess I'll go first. Uh, My name is Nikki Archuleta and um, I am the founder of Black Lives Matter ABQ, the branch out here. And um, a lot of my work has just been rooted in black liberation, but um, I think more specifically centering uh, black voices that are not usually amplified or heard. And I think that it's really important with the the, um, space and platform that I have um, to elevate and protect and amplify uh, the most marginalized voices in the black community. Um, But outside of that, I also have a podcast uh, and I also do poetry and other things like that, but all of that is centered around my identity and and my community's, um, you know, historical context, past and present. So, and thanks for having me. I'm I'm incredibly excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And hi, I'm Dr. April Alexander. Um, My uh, position currently is an associate professor in psychology at the University of Denver. Um, My background and training has centered around clinical and forensic psychology, which is simply the intersection between psychology and the legal system. Uh, That over the years, a lot of my research and clinical work have centered conceptualize that differently through the years. Uh, I think that's what led me to my work as a community organizer with Black Lives Matter 5280, uh, which is a Denver chapter for the movement of Black Lives, um, and just doing a lot of work with their educational squad and a lot of our community outreach efforts. Um, So that's just a little bit about me. That's really cool. Um, A question that we had for both of you was, what is your personal history with racial justice movements, and how did you find the passion for the work? I think for me, uh, it started off in my work in forensic psychology, uh, that for me, I've been working in jails, prisons, state hospitals, uh, juvenile residential treatment facilities. And when you're embedded in those systems, you constantly see the inequities. Um, I, I think what moved me into this movement was working with adolescent boys in a residential treatment program or juvenile detention facility in Alabama. Uh, every day, you know, I'm walking in with my positionality as a black woman into this facility that was majority black and brown youth, uh, youth who were not always treated fairly in the justice system and not given the best due process. Uh, kids who are behind in education, uh, you know, a 16 year old boy who uh, was barely at the kindergarten reading level. Um, so I think day after day of seeing those injustices then going home and seeing everything that was going on with Trayvon Martin and uh, Sandra Bland, um, all of that at the same time kind of sat with me of, I need to do something more, Uh, whether that was as an individual, as a black woman, or as this person who's a psychologist and supposed to be involved in the healing of people. Um, So that's when I pivoted my, um, again, both career and personal life to be more involved in racial justice. Uh, what ways can I do with my uh, talent, skills, abilities, personality to make a difference in our community? Um, so I took that really seriously and tried to find those spaces here in Denver when I moved here. Um, so, yeah. And I agree with you, Dr. Alexander, like literally um, everything you said, I think um, for me, and, and where I live, New Mexico, New Mexico, you know, the demographic of black folks here is um, considered 
um, basically non-existence, even though we do occupy so much space and we have contributed to so much of the history of New Mexico. Um, we tend to be in this space where we are not really considered or counted as a group of people in this state. And I think um, when I was a little bit younger, um, I think, you know, as a, as a person of color, as a black woman, in, in a weird, strange way, we're always kind of um, aware like without being aware, like even from a young age, I just knew something was wrong and different. And, and the experiences I had and my brothers had and my family had just weren't adding up to me. But it wasn't until um, I really, really, really got involved into um, um, organizations and, and groups out in New Mexico and in Albuquerque specifically, where I realized um, a lot of people exploit um, black trauma and black pain uh, for their own benefit and their own agenda. And there's no real center. There's no, we're, they're not really centering blackness. They're not centering black voices. They're not centering our identities, you know, our stories. And I realized that, you know, um, they were not going to do that. So it was my job to make it happen, right? It was my, I, you know, at that point I had um, a pretty good platform. And even if I didn't have a platform or, or anything like that, I felt like as much as um, we put ourselves on the front line, right? For any, any social justice movement or any um, marginalized groups of people, we don't seem to receive the same type of support, right? And so I realized, you know, that if I want voices in my community to be heard and I want people to listen to us. Um, I need to, there's no other way to do this other than putting myself there and saying, hey, you know, um, you're telling me you center blackness, but you're only centering my identity and who I am as a person and, and my um, historical context when it is appropriate for you and when it, you know, benefits you. So that's when I really started you know, looking around and, and that's the thing, you know, we're considered a, a non-existent demographic, but I see so much, you know, black creation in existence here. And it's really, it was just really strange and uncomfortable to me to see that, like, we were not really occupying any of these spaces. Like these spaces were just not, there was nothing, you know, centering around us. There was, you know, I would go into rooms and, and I think, a huge, also a huge part of that was a lot of tokenism. You know, I am a lighter complexed woman and I was allowed into spaces that, I mean, a majority of the time I knew um, uh, black women who were darker complexed than me and just brilliant, right? Incredibly intelligent. I mean, I personally didn't feel like in a lot of these spaces, I should be occupying these space, right? I felt like these uh, uh, women are more educated in the sense on what they're talking about, you know, the experience. And like I said, I feel like um, with the privilege that I have, I feel like if I'm not elevating those voices, what am I really doing? So it was just really interesting to see myself like move through these spaces. And, you know, people tell me, yeah, we care about your voice. We care about your story, but they weren't allowing other individuals that didn't meet the criteria that they wanted in these spaces. Right. So you know, I, I feel like I was just kind of pushed um, and a good push, not a bad push, pushed into a space where I said, you know, something has to change. Something has to be different. And um, I'm not going to allow people to exploit um, not only our pain and trauma, but our joy and resilience, right? Because that be, that is a huge thing that is exploited. And um, as much trauma and violence we experience, that's not all we are, right? We are still here. We're still thriving. We're still existing. And to me, that is, I mean, that alone keeps me going on the worst days. So I, yeah, I just stepped into that and, and it kind of was just, I haven't stopped since, which is, you know, great. I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful. Yeah. Um, I think like a similar thing that like I got from both of your stories was how like you needed like you saw in your work the injustices that um so many like I you know like I feel like that's like a common commonality between like most like you know black activists where we see injustice and we get angry and 
you know, like we're pushed in positions where we're like, you know what, like I'm the only one that like could save me. Like it's my, like I have to step up and yeah, I think like, it's so beautiful how both of you guys stepped up and you're here today. So yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I just, it's really crazy. Cause I just did a, um, uh, I actually just did a panel for, um, um, African affairs out in New Mexico. And we were having this conversation about these spaces of like, when it's appropriate to allow allies in when it's not, and, you know, and I, we, we had this conversation and it's so interesting because it's kind of crazy. You know, I see black women and black trans women literally as a blueprint and, um, I'm so inspired, right. I, I am, I'm here because of black women and black trans women. And it's so interesting because, um, we were having this conversation about allies and like what's appropriate. And like you said, I think it's absolutely okay for us to say, I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to focus on, you know, my people, what we're going through. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with saying, Hey, this is not a space for allies right now. You know what I mean? So yeah, I definitely can relate to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think like if for me, like my story with that was like, I was never like, I don't know, like I never like saw myself in leadership positions and I was always too scared to step up. Um, but like, I was just like, I was just getting too angry. Like I saw that, like the people that should have been doing the things that like, you know, creating an equitable space for me, they were refusing to do that. And I had to, like, I was not given a choice. So like, I think it's so beautiful that like when um, black women step up and when they're, when they just, sorry. <laughs> um when they just like um automatically uh, feel called to these leadership positions but like also like the trauma of like having to you know like without like having to put yourself in like positions where adults should be in and you know like taking responsibilities that are like you know you know like we can do it because like you see you see us doing it we've been doing it but like it's also so crazy how like we are forced to do it like we have no other option kind of I think that's part of it I think my journey was you know part of that kind of racial identity development it's not that I didn't see those inequities before uh, you know a few years ago um, I was in it <laughs> being a, a living as a black woman you saw the inequities in different ways and that affected you in different ways throughout the lifespan. Uh, but I think for me, there was a critical moment where um, it was survival. Uh, it's either I get activated now and do something or um, it's going to be those around me next, uh, that it was so immediate in proximity. That's what kind of activated me to get into that work. And I think for each and every person there, um, especially those with marginalized identities, there is that moment of mm -hmm. um, this we can't take anymore. And I can't just ignore that. Um, and I think for quite a few people, that was last year. Uh, this was in my face now. And now that I saw this, I can't unsee it. Um, so what can I do about it? I, again, what are you comfortable with in your space to uh, engage in uh, community organizing? Not everybody's going to be out marching. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people thought last year. They're like, oh, I can't be out at protests for this, that, and the other. And some were legitimate reasons. We had immunocompromised people who didn't feel comfortable being out there uh, because of COVID-19. Um, but what else can you do with your, again, abilities and your comfort level to still be involved in Yes, I can't be able to do this with the adult, my own school, my own neighborhood to be involved in this movement. And that's what has been um, so special um, in this um, time. And for me, you know, I can totally, I didn't know how much of an impact it had on me, where I went to a predominantly like minority middle school. And so we didn't really talk a lot about racism and stuff like that because we all just were like we face it but we don't really need the we don't see the need to you know constantly bring it up and bring ourselves down and then freshman year you know I moved to a completely new district a predominantly white school and you know going from being the majority in the classroom to like a minority in the classroom is such a big shift especially for someone like a freshman and so that was really when to me it hit me and I was like oh my god like this is real and this happens and it's not just to black men it always happens to black women and you know just doesn't get the attention that it deserves and so um that to me was when I was like I just really need to start you know speaking up about this and being a voice not only for me but other black women within my community as well so 
I find that really interesting that we all, you know, started somewhere, but, you know, here we are today. Well, and you know what I also think about is I've seen this time and time again, and I, I think that this has just been, and I'm sure you, all of you can absolutely relate. Um, I think a lot of time in these spaces, like my leadership has been doubted, right? And it's just this continuous, like, you know, oh, like, I don't trust this. I'm not going to believe this. I can't, you know, Nikki's in the space and she's, you know, operating. And what I've learned is that when black women lead, we win. We all win, not just us. We all win. And it's one of those things, like, I don't think people really understand um, how all of us were talking about is basically we're put in these positions by default. So these are spaces we have to occupy whether we want to or not, you know, and I, and, and I feel like people don't really understand the trauma that goes with that, right? Like, I think for me, I've had a really, really hard time um, um, being in spaces and, and, and trying to move in a way that is healthy for me, right? While also dealing with outside situations, inside situations, my own personal situations, and all of the pressure and, and we're not put in spaces where we're allowed to make one mistake. Like as Black women, we are never, I'm, I'm telling you, like I've seen, and, and this, uh, when we start talking about, you know, um, Black men in leadership roles, um, I mean, I could literally spell something wrong in a post and people are just dragging me. And I'm just like, you know, and I'm one of those people, I, I absolutely believe in accountability. I believe in being a better person. I don't think I'm perfect, but I've seen situations, you know, and we just recently out here, we recently just got done with like a whole community debacle because we're, I'm consistently in these spaces where black men are not being held accountable, right? And accountable in the sense that, hey, we're a community. We, we gotta, we gotta do something here. We have to intervene here. Like, you know, and it's crazy because I've been in these roles consistently where I'm saying, mm, this is not right. This doesn't look right. This doesn't feel right. And people are like, no, no, they would never, they, you know, they would. And it's just, it's frustrating because it's like, and I'm sure you have all felt like this. Sometimes it feels so demoralizing. Right. But also I've been in so many spaces where I'm like, I'm done. I quit. I give up. Right. But that's not realistically what happens. Right. I say I give up and I say I'm done, but I'm pulled back in because I don't have the privilege of not engaging and, and protecting my community. I just don't, we don't have that privilege. So it's really interesting to me, um, you know, that, and I think that this is a conversation that um, should be happening more often, especially amongst young black women, right? Um, your mental health, uh, your physical health, your emotional health, all these things are so important, right? And it starts from such a, a, a young age, you know, being in these leadership roles. I mean, I remember, I'm sure every, every single one of you have ha has had that moment where you're in this space and they just, they're talking about a black issue or they're talking about, you know, an indigenous issue and you're the only black person in the room, right? And they just look at you like, you can, you can tell us about that, right? And I'm like, actually I can't like, you know, and I think just creating those boundaries and it's okay to say, you know, I, I think for us, it's okay. And people will demonize us for, for this. People will be upset with it. But what I've learned is I cannot operate in these spaces if I don't say no. If I do not tell people, no, I can't. It's not, I'm not comfortable with it. I don't have the energy um, because we're just shifted. We're just pushed into these spaces all the time. And it's so overwhelming and it takes so much of us. So I've had a really, really hard time. And luckily I'm getting a lot better at it now. You know, I'm 27, but I've had a, such a hard time saying no, because I, I, I have so much um, emotion and compassion and just belief in my community. And I want to be everywhere at once. And I want to help every situation or person I can, but I've realized that's not healthy for me. You know, and that started when I was very young, you know, just saying, okay, I guess I'll do it. I'm the only like, I, you know, I'm the only black kid here. Okay, I'll do it. I'll, yes, yes. And, you know, so I think it's really important for young uh, black women and young black girls. I mean, and just black youth in general to prioritize their health and um, 
somebody said something to me a while back, a long time ago, where it said, you know, you're not, we're not going to wake up and racism is not misogyny, white supremacy is not going to be gone. So in the sense of taking care of yourself, you're not missing anything. You know, it's not, I, I would love for it to wake up and it be for it to be over with, but that's just not the reality. And it's okay, you know, to step back and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to remove myself from these situations or I'm not going to attend because my health is more important than your need for um, a, a black body or a black face or a black voice to fill a space or a void that you need. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of like um, my past year, uh, my junior year where I was so in my school. Um, I'm, I think there's like 15 black kids. Like it's a very small school, but still like, you know, black kids are like so um, rare. <laughs> um, so like oftentimes I find myself being like one of the only like black women in the class and um, you know, like, okay. So I, okay, so, you know, my white teachers, all of them are white. Um, they felt inspired, I guess, from the Black Lives Matter movement um, to teach more um, classes based on Black culture. And I was a part of, um, like, this rap class um, and environmental justice and um, patriotic protests. But each of, like, the close classes, I noticed how it was very sugar-coated information that was being given. And like, I remember like in my environmental justice class when she would just like refuse to talk about redlining and like how black people are the ones, black and brown um, people are the ones that suffer the most from environmental injustice. And I had to continuously like push in and be like, hey, like we're the ones that suffer. Don't forget, like, don't try to like, you know, I don't see color type of thing. And I remember like, it was like so hard hitting. Like I was even one time where like in my patriotic protest class, um, this teacher, like, well, my teacher, she was going like, oh yeah, so protest, the right way to protest is peaceful and riots, they're wrong. And any way that doesn't make us feel comfortable is wrong. And I was just like, you know, I was just so tired of arguing where like, I just broke down crying. Like I could not handle it anymore. Like I could not, get into another argument with a grown like adult who was supposed to be teaching me and I could not like you know continuously like push myself into these um roles that like I just don't want to be in and luckily I had contacts of like a black therapist who I've been we've been discussing social justice and I like let her know and she told me like exactly what you were saying Nikki how you know, it's not always our burden to carry. You know, sometimes our like we need to prioritize our mental health and like us stepping up that's that's a beautiful step we're taking to empower our communities but that's also like you know not a burden that we must carry and it should only be done when we're like you know able to do it and I think your story highlights so much of what um, also what Nikki was saying of uh, we're often placed in those positions of being the one and only Mm -hmm. um and you know for you you had it sounds like had some supports through your therapist and things like that and we have to recognize so many other young black girls who don't have that in kind of the struggles that they're facing uh if they don't feel empowered to say something against this teacher who's in this position of authority over you um and there's just so many times where uh, again we're put in these positions of being the one and only or the first uh, and that's a lot of pressure on people. And that's why I love that message of self-care. How do you take care of yourselves when you are always on the front lines, when you're always having to justify your position, when you're always having to educate the educators um, on some of these issues because they're still learning. Yes, they got activated last year, but they probably haven't <laughs> done their they probably haven't done their homework and they haven't done their readings. And so they're not even well-versed in redlining. Um, so, you know, it just talks about the immense pressure that's out there on young people uh, for seeing this, knowing that it's wrong and trying to find their space to empower themselves, uh, take care of themselves, and then hopefully change systems. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so our next like question and section will be addressing um, systemic racism. And um, so the definition I found for um, systemic racism on Cambridge Dictionary was that it is um, systemic racism is policies and practices that exist throughout a whole society or organization and that, oops, sorry, it just disappeared on me. 
<laughs> oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> and that uh, in and support a continued unfair advantage to some people and unfair, harmful treatment of others based on race. Um, how would you define systemic racism and how does it play in our society? I, I, I like that definition, uh, but I think it goes even beyond systemic. It's also historical racism, uh, that the systemic racism came from somewhere. And so that's why it's so important, like uh, an example that you just gave to go back and learn our history. Uh, why did these certain policies start? Uh, how did they begin? All of them are likely rooted in colonialism um, and just the oppression of marginalized people, starting with indigenous people and then other um, people of color. Um, and so I think even with that definition of systemic racism, we have to go back and reflect on the history of uh, colonization, white supremacy, and the historical racism to get to where we came today. We need to understand that background to see where our systems went awry. Um, because people somewhat get the systemic part. We know there's educational inequities, but how in depth are those? Um, I testified on the Crown Act here in Colorado to end uh, hair discrimination. Uh, and even my own graduate students, they said, you know, yeah, that's bad, but you know, why do we care about hair discrimination? Where does this come from? Why was that policy invented? We have all these dress code policies, all these hair policies to deliberately target black, brown, indigenous students, yeah. queer students. Uh, there's dress code policies. You can't dress in a manner that's outside of your gender in some <laughs> um, places. What does that even mean? Clothes are clothes. Clothes don't have a gender. Um, so what are you actually trying to do with that policy? Um, so I think when we're thinking about systemic racism, racism, yes, it's good to touch upon that, but we really need to dig and think about how it's deliberate, how it's historical, and how it's rooted in white supremacy to understand how pervasive it is. I absolutely 100% agree. Um, I am consistently in spaces where I'm telling people historical context is so important. You cannot um, uh, uh, have a really true meaningful conversation with people who don't understand our experience if they have no concept of our his the historical context that comes behind that, right? So um, I think what everything um, April said is incredibly important in the sense that So for example, here in New Mexico, um, I think a lot, and I think this is the case, um, you know, all around um, America, people think that because these um, personal interactions with racism, that they don't exist in the sense of like, you can't drink, this is a white water fountain, this is a colored water fountain, you can't drink out, because those sim that symbolization doesn't exist in the sense that like I mean people still do crazy things like that but it's not the it's not the norm in the sense of society right now here in this point so I think people really truly believe because um, people get called out for saying the n word we live in this post racial society right post race society um, I'm thinking about all of these policies put in place that are, are that are being put in place right now um, about education right you can't teach race theory why is that policy being pushed why is that being passed right because at the end of the day once you understand America's history um, with race right and all of these policies and how it is the foundation of America you will understand why these things exist you will understand why people are discussing hair discrimination you will understand why redlining is a huge issue you will understand why um, having black and brown women in 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 positions of power is dangerous for white men right so I agree absolutely a hundred um, uh, percent I I think the definition that was read and what um, April added to that is absolutely, um, this is not a very, and I think a lot of people like to think that, that this is a very surface level thing, right? We're in 2021 and these things don't exist. And that's the thing, just because the reality is not, and I, a lot of people have a hard time understanding that is just because the reality is not yours or you didn't experience this or you don't have ancestors who experience this type of trauma and pain and things like that, does not mean it does not exist, does not mean that it's not present. And I mean, it's now more than ever thriving, right? You know, um, 
So I think that it's really important that when we're talking about systemic racism, people need to be very careful with how they use the term and how they define it, because it is not, like I said, it's not this surface level thing to where, oh, you know, I live in a state, New Mexicans love to think that um, Albuquerque in New Mexico is incredibly progressive, right? But I'm still um, being, I'm, I'm still being in spaces. I mean, I had a whole situation with these young girls Uh, these young black girls who wanted a BSU at their school and their teacher, their principal legit told them, well, if you want a BSU, then we have to let white kids have a white student union. And these, you know, these girls are like, I mean, they can articulate why they don't need anyone speaking for them, but it's this idea that, you know, uh, how you were talking about your experience and, and being in a place where these adults have this type of authority over you, right? They're responsible for your education. And that is incredibly important. Um, So, you know, the principal didn't really understand how that was problematic in itself, saying that to a group of Black girls who wanted to start a group because they're in a predominantly white institution. Nothing is centered around their identity. And when it's centered around their identity, it's not one realistic, it's not truthful, right? It's, 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 in the surface level of what, you know, the black experience is in America. And, you know, he was just, oh, well, I, you know, I just only think it's fair. You know, there, there's historical context behind these things. And in order to work this stuff out, in order to actually move forward, you know, and for me, I, I, I think a lot, I think, uh, you know, uh, black women and, and, and young black girls, we are, you know, our whole existence is in um, hope. But at the same time, I absolutely believe that we are realist, we are realistic. And to sit here and not have these conversations and, and about what really happened as painful and as hard as it may be, we're not gonna go anywhere. We're gonna keep pulling band-aids off when it bleeds through, when it scabs over, we're gonna put a little peroxide on it and we're gonna put a band-aid back on it. And we're going to have to take the bandaid off again. And we're never going to fully, you know, um, get past that, that spot into healing until people can confront the historical context that has bled over into present day, into 2021, you know? So I absolutely agree. Yeah. And, you know, something I wanted to add on was just like, I feel like when people think about systemic racism, they only think of it through the perspective like of policing and all of like the deaths that are, you know, happening with black men and police and all of the, you know, interactions we we have with police as black people. But, you know, like April mentioned earlier, there's so many different sides to systemic racism. There's the education aspect, there's the housing and there's uh, funding and all that. Like, it's just so much. And I think the fact that people only know one side to it just shows how much educating we need to do. And, you know, this is not me saying, oh, I know everything about systemic racism. I myself have so much to learn. And, you know, this like podcast itself is, a learning experience for me but I think especially for our white allies and just for other people who are not black there's definitely a lot of educating that needs to be done because you know we're not just disproportionately affected through the criminal justice system but we're disproportionately affected through every single system within this nation and so I think that's something that a lot of education needs to be done um, you know on. And I just want to add, it is not your, it's not your job, because this is a place, I'm so passionate about this aspect, it's not your job to educate those people. It is not your job. I think we are, especially, you know, youth, I mean, up until this day, I would prefer to have conversations with younger people, because adults are just crazy, but it is, I continuously hear that phrase, anytime I'm in any type of dialogue, It's, oh, but isn't it your job? Isn't it, if I don't know, shouldn't you tell me? It is absolutely not your job. If we ever want to move past this, if we ever want to be in a post-racial society, it's their job to start the work. They need to do the work. It is not your duty. It is not your job. And I feel like 
I'm sure you've been, you, you've all been in plenty spaces where you get that pushed off onto you. Like, oh, well, if I don't know, teach me. No, absolutely not. If they're not paying you, and this is, uh, you know, black women have told me this a hundred times. And even when they are paying you, you don't owe them anything. If they are not paying me, if allies and, and non-black folks of color are not paying me, you know, I'm not performing trauma for people. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. But if you're not paying me for this education that you want so much and you value so much, then I don't know what to tell you. You need to open a book, Google it, figure it out on your own. I don't, you know, that's not me. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of like, um, so during um, Black History Month, my school um, for the past three years I've been with them, they have not done a single thing for Black History Month like have not mentioned it, have not spoken about it. And I've experienced so much racial trauma in that school where um, like, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's been like, you know, I've had like such disturbing experiences where like with racist teachers and racist students too. So I found it like this year, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna speak up and I'm gonna like, you know, point it out to the like principal. I like, how, why are we not having this when like every other school was having like some sort of like acknowledgement of Black History Month. And when I emailed her, she um, emails me back like, okay, well, if you want to like do something, you can do it. Like, it's not my responsibility. You can figure it out type of thing. And I did take it on like as a like, I was like, you know what? Like, she's right. It's my job to educate them. Like I'm actually passionate. And it was just so overwhelming for me. I was already dealing with so much throughout that year that like my mental health could not take it. And like, she kept like pushing this agenda of like, well, like you want to do something about it, then you do it. Like, it's not, I'm not going to do anything for you. Um, and finally, that like, it's- right there, that right there is systemic racism. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not, that's the example, right? If you're not willing to, as an administrator, embed that into your work, into your curriculum. Uh, and, you know, young people are talking about this right now of their curriculum doesn't represent them. Uh, it never had and so for an administrator to say that they're not going to actually force their teachers their staff to integrate that that's the example right there of systemic racism and again the unfair labor the invisible labor often invisible labor that's placed on black women yeah yeah definitely and like I feel like it took that experience for me to be like you know what I'm done being nice I should have called her out I should have been like this is your job I'm not the teacher I'm not the principal like I, like this is your responsibility but instead like you know I took on the role that black women are often forced into where I was like you know what you're right I'm sorry like I will do everything I will like take this burden on and like I won't like bother you with it but yeah that was wrong <laughs> absolutely and I feel yeah. like a lot of like black you know youth feel the responsibility not just like from out you know like from other people but they put that pressure on themselves too where it's like if they don't see, you know, their friends and their classmates and their peers, you know, not educating themselves, they're like, okay, I have to do it for them. And, you know, I I feel like a lot of people went through that within this past year, ever since what happened with George Floyd happened. I mean, personally with my school, they started like incorporating, having like discussions, you know, where uh, we would just talk about how we felt about the Black Lives Matter protests and everything like that. And me, again, being the only Black girl in the classroom at the time, you know, everybody turns to you. And I just kind of felt like it was me being forced to represent the Black community as a whole. And I feel like that's something that not a lot of people talk about because the Black community is so diverse within itself. And so I feel like that's so much pressure on a teen to be like, hey, you know, as a person who's Black, how do you feel your community feels about this? I feel like that's just wrong in so many ways because it's like I might have my own opinions but you know Nikki or April might have completely different opinions from me even though we're from the same community and so I feel like that's also something that schools really need to work on as well because it's like one black person does not or cannot ever you know represent the whole community and yeah yeah we're not we're 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 absolutely not a monolith um I, I think you have hit on a key point, um, and this just goes back into performing trauma. You know, I think when people have, that's the thing, a lot of allies, a lot of these spaces are really not meant for tangible change, right? 
So like we talked about, it's cool to march. It's all, you know, I've had these conversations over and over again. Yeah, it's great to do these things that it's really important to show up. But at the end of the day, what are you doing outside of having black folks sit in spaces and perform trauma for you? So you can say, oh yeah, I stand with you. And I feel, I feel so much better. I heard your story. You know, I've, I've been through the whole nine yards, people crying and, you know, people crying like, oh, oh my gosh, like I've never, I, I've never, I was never able to relate. And it's like, no, you cannot relate, right? You can't, it's not your experience one. But also you sat here and you told me how much you supported and how much you cared. And, um, you know, there's no other interaction. I had a woman, we did, um, you know, the whole thing when the nasty woman thing was going on. And um, I was very critical of that because I've consistently seen black women do the work over and over and over and over and again. And here in New Mexico, you know, they had a whole women's march, all of this great stuff. I was confused as to why the lineup was all white women. I was so like, what? Like, you know, and I, I even opted out of that um, experience because I said, I'm not, this is just not healthy, right? And one of the women, um, one of the, one of the, this older white woman, she messaged me, right? And she was like, how can I help this, this, and this, and this, right? And I told her exactly what she can do outside of attending marches and protests, right? Because even then they're not willing, a lot of allies are not willing to put their bodies on the line. And that's incredibly problematic. What are you really doing in those spaces if we're in the front and you're in the back taking selfies? Like, how does that protect us? How does that create any type of change? How does that push us forward? It doesn't. And I told this woman what she could do and her message back to me. And I was just so angry. Like I just was like, and when I seen this woman, you know, I let her have it. Um, but she literally asked me, right. I did the labor for her and told her what she could do. And her response was, well, you know, um, now that Trump is elected, there's just a lot going on. And I just really don't have the time to do that. And I'm angry because I'm like, you made me do labor to help you be involved, which I did not have to do. Right. Only for you to come back and tell me that this is not a priority for you. You know, black women and children, black folks dying, right, violently dying on display for the world to see. You'll share that. You'll share those things over and over again. Right. You'll share those images. You'll tag your black friends in those images. But when we tell you what you can do, you have a problem with it. So it's like I think it's incredibly I think it's incredibly it's, it's tough because we're in these spaces where people want us to educate them, right? And I tell allies that anytime I'm in a space with allies, I tell them, you know, basically this is your time to be quiet. You need to listen. Listen to understand, not to respond. You need to hear us. We will tell you exactly what you need to do. When you say, well, I don't know what to do, it's because you're not listening, right? And it's, I, I don't think it's fair to put you all in spaces where you're put in a space where you have to talk about, you're performing trauma. You have to talk about your trauma and your pain and, you know, evoke some type of emotion, you know? And I learned that, I, I, what I've learned because a huge chunk of, of my life, uh, especially in college, I spent so much energy trying to get people to understand me as a human being, right? And our community as a human beings, we're, we are the same as anyone else, right? We're trying to live and thrive and create and be happy. And what I've realized is people, no matter what you say to them, you cannot force them to, to accept your humanity. You can't force them to see you as human. And if that's the case, why not be authentically yourself, authentically in your Blackness, authentically saying, hey, look, I don't want to entertain these ideas. Y'all can talk about how you can help the black community, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you my experience so you can get some type of um, uh, uh, good feelings inside. Meanwhile, you know, I can't go home and say, you know, I'm going to take a break from being black today. So uh, I think, yeah, I agree with you. It's absolutely, absolutely unfair for schools to say, let's have a conversation and then, um, force you into a space where you have to go through, you have to relive trauma to make them say, oh, hey, maybe I'll go to, a, you know, I have this one black friend and she was telling me about her experience and it's pretty screwed up. So maybe I'll go to a march. Like, no, they don't deserve that energy from you. 
you know, and it's okay. Like I said earlier, it's okay to tell them no, you know, and, and, and even if you don't want to speak, even if you don't want to have that interaction, that's your choice. You have the right to choose those things, you know? So that is just, ugh. <laughs> you know, you remind me of like this experience I had on Juneteenth. Um, so I decided like, you know, one of the ways I was going to celebrate Juneteenth was by volunteering at a community garden in um, downtown on like Colfax and 16th, I think. I don't remember. Um, but it was um, so when I was volunteering there, I got partnered up with this white woman and I was like, oh, so like, are you doing anything for like to celebrate Juneteenth? And uh, she was like, oh, what even is that? Like, I need to like look that up. And I told her about it. I was like, you know, I was just trying to be like a bit understanding. And she was like, oh, so like, do I have to like be nice to black people? Like, what am I supposed to do? Oh and yeah, <laughs> so I was like, you know what? It's okay. She's not educated. Like I listed out things that she can do. I told her about like um, celebrations that are going on. I told her how she can donate and like educate herself. And she was like, she was just confused about like justice, you know, like social justice. And I told her, like, I recommended her how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X. Kennedy. Like if she wants to start educating herself. And after like, I literally talked for like five minutes, like telling her like what, where she can get started. She goes, it's just crazy. Like, I don't even really know where to get started. <laughs> I was like, do you want me to list it again? I was just, I was a uh, very, like, it was a very interesting like conversation because like, I think like that was the first time like this summer, like I've been in the, I don't know if you guys know like YASPA, um, uh, the uh, program here in Denver, um, actually where I think, um, and I've been in that um, summer institute and we've been learning about how to um, take up space and actually speak up about like what we're passionate about and not keep it just like, you know, for like the weekends and like when we're in like our black spaces. Mm -hmm. So like, I was like, I really forced myself. I was uncomfortable and like, I took it as like my turn to like finally like speak up about my passion. And it was just like, it was a very like weird experience to see her like completely like, you know, take it in one ear and then like out the other, like completely ignoring mm -hmm. me. And, yeah. Just wasting <laughs> and, your and I think, time. Yeah. I think Nikki highlighted that earlier that I have, uh, I, I learned that I needed to be more mindful of what spaces I enter uh, because I was having those same reactions that when I'm doing these trainings on microaggressions, on cultural humility, and then what can you do? I did the same thing, list out the things you can do. And then at the end during the Q and A, they're like, so what can I do? And I'm like, so you're not invested or they're like, well, how do I talk about, how do I confront the microaggression? I don't want to hurt their feelings. I'm like, well, that already hurt people's feelings. So <laughs> calling them in is what you're supposed to do. They're like, how do I do that? I'm like, tell them it's wrong. That's it. And, and they're so baffled of, oh my gosh, because they've been in spaces where people have been saying offensive stuff all the time mm -hmm. uh, and they just remain silent. And so they're not comfortable um, among us who are taking up space and are refusing to remain silent. And so for me, I had to start being mindful of what spaces I wanted to enter. Uh, mm -hmm. That is not a good use of my time. That is uh, triggering for me to have to go through that and listen to that. And that takes time and space. I got now vent about it to my friends and family. Um, so I'm not gonna enter those spaces anymore. And that's maybe a part of going back to that self-care that we have to enact. Um, they, they know where to get the information. They know how to learn. When we are talking about systemic racism, there's all these studies out there that say, yes, these medical students believe that black people can withstand pain and this, that, and the other. So why aren't y'all correcting it? Mm -hmm. You've known this for decades, centuries, so why aren't you correcting it? You're opting not to. And so Absolutely. I'm not going to be in spaces where people are not opting to change. I agree 100%. Um, in New Mexico, Juneteenth was already a holiday, um, but people just don't care, right? Um, and it's really funny. I, I work at a nonprofit and these are, you know, I work around a lot of people who have this white savior complex and like, oh, I'm helping people. I'm so great. Oh my gosh. Give me a pat on the back. And it's so funny because um, they're like, oh, apparently all city buildings are closed on Friday. It's Juneteenth. I don't know what Juneteenth is, but I hope I get the day off. And I'm just like, and it was really funny because um, one of them is like, I hope we get paid, you know, and I, like I said, I work at a nonprofit with people who are very for people who are so educated, they really are dumb. Like, because it's just like how, you know, all these degrees, like, how did this happen? Like, what, what's going on here? And it's really funny. They got really quiet because I said, 
they were like, you know, we should, we should do, um, I hope we get paid, you know, time and a half holiday pay. And I said, yeah, I hope you do too, because the only person who it should go to is me. I'm the only black person in here. Like, you know, and they're confused. They didn't even know what, I mean, like I said, since 2006, they didn't know what Juneteenth was. They had no idea, but they were ready to have a day off. They were ready to get paid more money. Like, you know, so I agree. It's just, I don't owe, I don't, um, and it took me a long time to realize that I don't owe anyone an explanation. I don't have to defend my humanity to people. And um, like April said, you're going to be in spaces where you know where there's people who are genuinely willing to learn, grow, and do better, be accountable. And you will know when you're in spaces where people are insistent on arguing with you or just not taking, you know, um, um, your experience. And, and I think that that's more so even connected with Black women than not, right? We're consistently put in spaces where we're not being listened to. We're not being, I don't know how many times in this community of organizing with organizers where I'm just like, this is not appropriate. These people do not care. I mean, I, I went through a whole situation where this organization was collecting donations for, for in, in the name of Black trauma and pain, right? Our community never seen those donations. And I kept saying, you know, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Nikki, you're just being crazy. You know, people were gaslighting me all for them to turn around and say, you know what? These people are horrible people. And I'm like, this group of black women has been telling you that for years. So it's just one of those things, you know, I, I protect my energy in that sense. I'm not going to give the first time you do not want to have, you don't want to have a real conversation where you're going to be uncomfortable. Nobody likes to hear things that benefit them and hurt other people. No one wants to hear that. No one wants to accept that truth, right? So it's like, if you're not going to, you know, sit in those spaces and say, you know what? All right. It, and, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I've heard this. Oh, well, I didn't. I, my, I never owned slaves. Well, you know, there's these systems in place that you directly benefit from, right? And you're not stepping in. You're not holding anyone accountable. You're not doing, you're aware of these things and you're not doing your part to change them. So then by default, just by like default, I'm forced into these situations. By default, you are responsible, you know? So if they're not willing to do that, then you should not ever have to put yourself in a space where you give so, we already give so much of ourselves in general. So If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider donating to support this work by youth activists across the country. Visit ycdiversity.org to make a donation or to get involved.